This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that uh, Easter is not finished, that the tomb is still empty, that Jesus, you are alive, you are risen, you are glorious. And even now, we think about the times when you were with your disciples for 40 days uh, before you sent the Spirit, and we ask, Lord, that you would um, give us that attentiveness that your disciples would have had as, as you spoke, and, and even as you speak this morning through your Word, Lord. May you do wonderful things uh, through my weakness, uh, that through my feeble words, your perfect Word would go out and, and not return void. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray now for those who are far from you, that they would come near, and those, uh, Lord, who, who, who may be straying, that you would, you would uh, speak to them and that they would hear your voice this morning, Good Shepherd. Uh, we love you, Jesus, and we pray that you are glorified this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. This, uh, this past week was a big week for me. Um, Avengers Endgame came out. And uh, no spoilers, relax. I care too much about it to spoil it for you. Uh, But I've been waiting for years, 12 years, 22 films uh, for this ending uh, to come. I've seen it three times in the span of 18 hours. Don't judge me. (laughs) And I've loved every second of it. And so uh, it's something, you know, me and my kids are, me and my kids, I'm really invested in. And uh, if I want to recall you back to movies past, in Captain America, the uh, the first Avenger, it ends in 1940, well, it, it, this happens at the end, 1945, uh, Captain Rogers, he's in a plane, he's talking to Peggy, his, the love of his life, and uh, in order to save the world, in order to save thousands and thousands of people, he crash lands his plane into the sea. And he, go, he falls into a coma for about 70 years, and he wakes up in a different age. He wakes up in this sort of post-9-11 age, and the scene at the end is, uh, they, they make sort of like a mock you know, uh, 1945 room with a nurse, and they, they, they're playing a baseball uh, uh, game on the radio, which he was actually at, and so he realized, so he runs out, and he, he's in Times Square, you know, just bewildered about where he is, what age he's in. And, and there's this real tension of him falling asleep in one age and waking up in another. And life is just completely and utterly different. And he spends years trying to adjust to this new age, and today what Paul does is he's going to help us adjust to a new age where, where the age of the law is past and now the age of the spirit and the gospel is present. And he's going to be speaking to Jewish believers in the first century Rome and helping them understand what it means to be the people of God and what that means in, with their relationship with the law. And many of us in this room are confused about what, what does it look like to be the people of God in the 21st century here in Sydney, in the urban West? And what does it mean now for me to relate? What is the relationship between us as a people and the law? Should we get rid of it? Should we be under it? How are we to obey it? Are we to obey it? Is it fulfilled? Are we to fulfill it? All these questions that swirl around our mind, Paul, with some tongue-twisting, you know, savvy skills, walks us through. And so today's, it includes a conflict of desires, but it's more about a conflict of ages, about what does it look like to be the people of God? What does it look like to wake up one day and realize that we're no longer under the law, but we are under 
grace. And Paul's going to do, there are about there are three movements here. He does several things, but three movements. And in the first few verses, verses 1 to 6, he talks about being released from the law. He talks about uh, this idea of divorce and not being married to the law any longer and so that we, we are free. And so he does that because he is speaking to legalists. He's speaking to people, who uh, Jewish Christians, who wanted to continue to obey the law of the Old Testament as a way to be accepted by God. And that, that's very important to understand that, that what he is preaching to are not people who just love the law, although that's true, but they love the law in such a way that they said, this is the way we are accepted by God. This is how we are, in theological terms, justified. And then he moves on to people who, who say, no, 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 in fact, that's totally wrong. We need to get rid of the law. And, and, and uh, these people, what we would call people of license, he speaks against them in the next few verses from 7 to 13, saying, no, the law is holy and good. And then finally, the most controversial verses, in the last 12 verses of this text, 14 to 25, I believe he's giving us a picture of what it looks like to fight sin under the law, not under grace. And so we'll, we'll go through those in due time. So if you want to follow with me from verse 1, chapter 7, released from the law, Paul says this, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, it is not, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order why? Why have we, why has that happened? In order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit, not for life, not for righteousness, but for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And Paul is doing two things here. One, he is, uh, he is showing us that we are no longer the law. He's showing them, the Jewish first century believers, that they are no longer under the law. See, because up to this point, Paul hasn't said too many uh, positive things about the law. Let me give you a catalog. In, in 3.20, he says that the law reveals sin. In 3.19, he talks about the law condemning the sinner. In 4.15, he talks about the law bringing the wrath of God. In 5.20, he says that the law was added so that trespasses might increase. And so there's this catalog that Paul is going through and, and really giving a negative picture of what the law is and how the law is to operate. And so he, he uses this language to tell the legalists, listen, it is not, it's no longer about keeping the law. You are not justified in the sight of God by keeping the law. And I feel we're, we're basically clear on that, even though our lives need to catch up in some ways. And at this point, then, what are the options? If the option now in this age of grace, in this age of post-resurrection Jesus, what, 
what are the options? And if we're not to keep the law, many people, what many people were saying is then we need to get rid of the law. And I feel maybe that's a, where we may sit, where we say we don't need the law any longer. We are no longer under law, but under grace. And so Paul attacks that in the next several verses. He says this as he defends the law. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. And that by no means is incredibly emphatic. Over my dead body. And he goes on. Yet, if, I, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what is to covet, to want what is not yours, if the law had not said, speaking of the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. But sin, listen to this, verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. See, I was once alive apart from the law. It's a bit like slam poetry, tongue tire. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, again, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring, life to, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order, listen, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, becoming sinful beyond measure. What is he saying there? He's saying this, that the law itself, the law that comes from a good and holy and just and beautiful God is good and holy and just and designed for our flourishing. When he gave his, uh, 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 his people, the Israelites, the law after he had saved them, that's very important. It's very important for us to understand the timeline of the Old Testament, that God gives the law after they are saved, after they are rescued through the Exodus, after they are taken from the land of Egypt and promised a new land flowing with milk and honey. He gives them the law after that. That's incredibly important for us to understand. A lot of us think that this God of the Old Testament has asked people to just measure up and then I may save you. And, and so Paul is, is, is fighting for people to see the law rightly. And he defends the law from those who would place the brokenness and the sinfulness at its feet. And he says it's not the law, but sin. Twice he says, seizing an opportunity. Prowling around, seizing an opportunity, waiting. And, and this is the insidiousness of sin, that it takes what is most good and twists it for evil. That it takes what is most good and twists it, uses, uses it as an instrument for the exact opposite of what it was designed to do. And we see this, we, we feel this, it, particularly in our culture when, when, when people abuse children, when they take something that is so good and put arms in their hands to fight wars. We fought for years to get children out of minds because they were using something so good, something so innocent, 
Even when we think about abuse, people using something so good for evil purposes is the height of sinfulness. It's the height of evil. It's the height of a parasitic perversion. And to take something so good like the law of God and make us believe that it is evil, it is bad, that it brings death, is the height of evil. C.S. Lewis speaks about this. He says, the better stuff a creature is made of, just follow with him, the cleverer and the stronger and the freer it is. So the better something is, the, the stronger, the, the, more, the smarter, the, the freer it is the better it will be if it goes right. But also the worse it will be if it goes wrong. A cow cannot be morally very good or very bad. A dog can be both better and worse. A child, better and worse still. An ordinary man or woman, still more so. A man or woman of genius, still more so. And a superhuman spirit, the best or the worst of all. And you think about our age. You think about our, the, the, the age we live in, the technological you know, age that we live in, in, in the 20th century that has saved so many lives. Many of us here are testament to that. That the, the, the modern world we live in is a beautiful world of, of, of scientific advancement that has so enriched our lives. And yet, this age, the 20th century, has been the bloodiest century in the history of written, uh, in, the, in the history of mankind that has been written, how can the, both of them be true? How can science that has produced miracles also produce catastrophic death? Because the better something is, the worse it can be. And so with the law of God, with the commandment that was given, it is so beautiful and pure that sin, seizing an opportunity, brought death. Needles. Needles save us from polio and, and other diseases that, 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 were, that were around 60 years ago. But needles can also be used to put poison in your arm. Things that are good can be so twisted. And this is what we need to understand, that sin is so utterly sinful. We treat sin like a pet more than an enemy. We, we, we practice sin management more than we do sin killing. John Owen said that, that unless we kill sin, sin is going to kill us. And what, what, what Paul is doing here, he is showing us the utter sinfulness of sin comes through because it has abused the good. Sin is a parasite. It is parasitic. It has little life of its own. I was talking to a friend uh, who knows a lot more about this, but um, I, was, I was trying to get him to explain to me how HIV AIDS works. How, how, how does it work? How, how does it actually enter into health and destroy it? He, said, he says, you know, it's just a couple strands of DNA or RNA. And they use healthy things, the healthy mechanisms of your body to produce death. And this is exactly what sin does. Sin attaches itself onto something good, something beautiful, and destroys it from the inside out. But we treat it so lightly. I treat it so lightly. Our culture treats it so lightly. Jesus said, rip out your eye if it causes you to sin. Cut 
off your hand. That, that, is, that is extreme language, even as hyperbole and metaphor as he is using it. He's saying anything that is causing you to sin, get it away. It is better for you to have a millstone. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a millstone. It's, it's not a little porter and mess, you know, pesto that, that you have at home. I've, I've seen you know, a millstone is, is humongous. It is better to have a millstone tied to your neck and thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to sin. Sin is serious, but it is not the first word or the last one. And he's going to give us, Paul will move on, he's going to give us this picture that, that not, not, legalism is not the answer, that living under the law is not the answer. We're not justified by it. But what he's going to show us now is that we're not sanctified by it. We're not made into the image of Christ. We're not made into the best versions of ourselves that God created us to be by being under the law. And so legalism isn't the answer. License is not the answer. And he gives us a, 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 this, this vibrant and, and stunning and confronting picture of what it looks like to struggle with this sin, with this animal, with this beast in our own power. In our own power. He says this. Let me go to verse 14. For we know, <clears throat> excuse me, that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under, sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This is the conflict of desire. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And he goes on. Now, the, the, the question for us today, and many of us may feel like we're living in that space, and the question that Paul wants to, wants to answer through this text is, who is he talking about? And the question you may have is, is who is this? Who's the I in this text? Can, can we say, as believers, post-Pentecost, full of the Holy Spirit, that this is our reality, that this is where we live, this is where we pitch our tents. And I don't believe that that's where Paul is taking us. Now, I want to say this very clearly about our struggle with sin. There are plenty of scriptures that show us what it looks like to struggle with sin in a serious and sustained way. In fact, Paul himself, throughout his life, as you, as you read his letters, you see him speaking about himself in his earlier letters as the least of the apostles, I'm the least of the apostles. And then by the end of his life, he's talking about himself as the chief of sinners. That, 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 that's a drop, if, if any. Similarly, in Galatians chapter 5, he says this about our struggle with sin. For the desires of the flesh, very similar language, are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, listen, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. 
And so, yes, I, I, I want to af- affirm the reality that there is an ongoing struggle that will not end until Jesus comes back or we are in the grave. But that is not what Paul is picturing in Romans 7. What he is picturing is someone who is struggling in their own power, not in the power of the Spirit, but in their own power to fight this, de- this, de- this demonic reality, this power of sin. And none of us here are Jewish first century believers. None of us, I, I don't think, are, would consider ourselves under the law in the same way. But many of us operate in that same space. The scripture is clear that when we are regenerate, meaning that when God brings us from death to life, when he wakes us up to see the beauty of Jesus and we say yes to Jesus and, and no to sin and we repent and we believe that we, are, we have the spirit. This is not about two-stage Christianity where there's, there's a point in your life where you believe in Jesus, but you don't have the Spirit. No, no, no. It says, when you are born again, you are born of the Spirit. You have been in your heart. The Holy Spirit has been deposited in your heart, the Scriptures say. And yet so often what happens is we refuse, we, 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 we don't tap into that. I don't know if anyone here has ever received an inheritance before. I'm not going to ask you, um, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or I'm going to ask you to borrow money, but it, it, maybe, uh, maybe you've taken out a loan, right? And you've sold your soul to these institutions. Sorry if you work for a bank, but um, Paul's talking about the powers. But um, if you've ever done that and you get approved, you still have to draw that down. It doesn't just automatically go into your account. They say, hey, it's ready. You can draw down whenever you're ready, whenever you need it. It's been deposited, but we don't draw down. And the Spirit in its fullness, as much as the Spirit, as Jesus Christ had while he was walking this earth, you have, I have, the church has. And yet we fail to draw down. And we live as Old Testament believers, maybe loving the law, but not realizing that we have the power to not live under the law of sin. And many of us feel so stuck in our addictions to gossip or shopping or binging or pornography, whatever it is, or religion. And we feel so helpless to change. And we say, I'm just going to pitch my tent in Romans 7. I do, you know, what I don't want to do. I don't do what I should do. That's just my lot. But there's a promise that you are no longer under the law, but freedom has been purchased for you to be free. Paul says, you, you were freed for freedom's sake, that we no longer need to live in this way. Do you, do you know, do you even know that? That there is freedom in Christ. There is progressive, what, what, what theologians would call progressive sanctification, that as we go along in life, little by little, trial by trial, obedience by obedience, we become more like Jesus. And it almost feels like we're this little acorn and sin is this granite slab that falls on us. And I can guarantee you, at first look, that acorn, you, you, you would put your money on the slab. Give it a hundred years. Give it some time. God is slow with us. He is patient with you. He cares for you. He sees your pain. He sees your sin. He sees your rebellion even. And he says, I love you. Turn 
draw down on the resources of the Spirit and grow in grace. It's like that old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. It goes like this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We have the resources of the living Spirit of God living within us. To no longer live in perpetual defeat, but to live in a way uh, to shape our lives around a vision of sin-defeating, flourishing that God has for us. Sin-defeating, flourishing that God has for us. It's possible, guys. It's possible because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And the resolution doesn't come here. The resolution doesn't come in this chapter. There's a foretaste. But it leaves us in the same way that Infinity War, Avengers, Infinity War left us. Suspenseful, waiting another year. Like what, what maniacs have done this to us, right? Like, and so I, I want to dip in to Romans chapter 8 to give us a picture of what it looks like to fight sin full of the Holy Spirit, to be a follower of Jesus, to be the people of God full of the Holy Spirit. Now, Ray Galea and Matt Sharp will be uh, really exposing this for us at our Week in the Way, and I, I, I would really encourage you uh, to come along. And I'll be doing a workshop on, on more, uh, the, the practical ways that God has given us, the, 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 what, what theologians have called avenues of grace, that God has given us to draw down on the power of the Spirit. So I want to read to you, and I want you to feel this contrast. I'm going to read from uh, uh, chapter 7, from verse 21, and I'm going to uh, dip into uh, chapter 8. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive, 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 to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I want you to notice just one thing before I move on, that the Spirit is nowhere here. He hasn't mentioned the Spirit since verse 6. And so he's trying to fight sin in the power of himself. And then he goes on, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending what? His own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he did what? He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so the answer about what it looks like for us to uh, have a relationship with the law is not that we live under it as to be justified by it. It's not that we are sanctified by it in our own power. It's not that we just get rid of it. But in Christ, we get to fulfill it freely. He's given us the grace to obey. And this is not just about this sort of outward uh, behavior modification. This is an all-in. This is a new way to live. This is a new way to be human. 
to relate to the God of the universe, to the one who wants to make you his friend. Jesus said to his, to his boys, I, don't, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. The Psalms talk about God wanting to be our friend. He calls Abraham his friend. And there is power available to you. There is power available to you to grow in this grace. By grace you are saved and by grace you are sanctified. You you grow up into Christ, not because solely of your own power, but we partner with God now and we rearrange our lives. You rearrange your life, not around your career, not around your family, not around your, 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 your hobbies or your interests. You rearrange the centerpiece of your life is how can I be formed in Christ and how can this flow out into the world? It's not so much about being in the world for Christ, but it's being in Christ for the world. There's power available. There is grace available. You are no longer under the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to now sing about that. I want to sing about the freedom that is available. I want to sing about the shackles that may break off as, as, as we sing and as we praise this beautiful God who wants to see us free. Do you want that? Do you have a vision for your life that we're not consistently stuck, but where there is progress in grace and in faith? And we must fight. Paul says we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the powers and the principalities that want to keep us in this mindset that we are still in shackles, but we're not. There's freedom. And part of that freedom, part of the way that we express that freedom is that we sing. We sing to this beautiful God who has freed us. We, we, we taste of the bread and the juice and, 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 and that reminds us of the broken body and the blood shed for us. Easter is not over. Easter is perpetual. We will continue singing about an empty grave. We will continue singing about a beautiful and powerful God who defeated death. That's, that, that's every day for us. And so I invite you to stand and sing and rehearse this beautiful story that God in Christ has defeated death and defeated the insidiousness of sin. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you. Lord, that you have saved us, that you have graced us, that you have given us power, Lord, for growth and for change, that we no longer have to be stuck under this idea of, of, of being sanctified by our own willpower. But you have given us the spirit of Christ. Oh, what does that mean if we get a hold of that reality? Help us, Lord, to rearrange our lives, to draw down on the beauty and the grace of who the Spirit is. A holy who, not a holy what. But a person has been given to us. And so we ask now, I ask Holy Spirit now that you would blow through this place and that you would release us from our sin and, and, and from the, the feelings of condemnation. For there is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have given us the power to say yes to you, the power to say no to sin. And we ask you now that you would help us to grow up into this. 
We thank you for all these things in your beautiful and wonderful and powerful name, Jesus. We love you. Amen.